Our great God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that in it we find life. We thank you most of all for the good news of Jesus. Please open the eyes of our hearts this morning that we might see him and trust him more and more and what he has done for us on the cross. Thank you for your love for us expressed in Jesus. Amen. Mark chapter 15, verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer? See how many things they are accusing you of. But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him, Hail, King of the Jews! Again and again they struck him on the head with a staff and spat on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, 
shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let the Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Hi, it's Craig Broman here from City Bible Forum. And I read this poem a couple of weeks back that I'd like to tell you. It's by Lunig. It's called Viral. Every man's a virus. Every woman too. Everyone's infectious. This is what we do. We spread the love around. We spread the hate as well. We give each other heaven. We give each other hell. We catch it from each other. We get it from the moon. Everyone's infectious. No one is immune. And I found myself going back to that poem, even though I glanced at it a few weeks ago, because it strangely sucks me back into its message. No one is immune. The things that consumed us last week have become uh, the trivialities of this week. Every day, another little piece of the scaffolding that we call normal human life has been dismantled on us. The speed and the utter sweep with which this virus has impacted society, the economy, the leisure industry, our health, is just all pervading. You know, one day we're worried about our overseas trip being stuffed up, the next we're thinking about our nest egg, then it moves on to the house and whether we'll be able to keep it, and then our jobs. And then finally we're thinking, what about if our very life is under threat or someone close to us? You know, in the bushfires, they said to people that you must leave your homes. In this crisis, we have to stay in our homes. Normally, communities come together in an emergency, but with this pandemic, we can't come together. We have to stay isolated. In wars, the enemy is a very real and visible threat. In this war, the enemy is unseen to the naked eye, menacing and lurking. Well, the talk today is entitled God's Stimulus Package, Easter. Because the Christian hope is that God hasn't left us to try and work out what's going on with us on our own. We're not left to struggle. Easter is God's vast and encompassing solution to humankind, whether we're facing a world war or the Spanish flu or the coronavirus. 
And the cross may be a familiar visual for all of us, but what actually went on at the cross? What was achieved? Malcolm Muggeridge, who was a famous, famous atheist turned Christian, said of his childhood, I would catch a glimpse of a cross, a telegraph pole, for example, and suddenly I would, my world would stand still. I knew that something more important, more tumultuous, more passionate than all the things of my good causes were at stake. I mean, what about you? What do you think when it comes to the cross? Uh, maybe you cast your verdict years ago and you've closed the file. Well, today, I'm trying to get you to just prise open that file, have another look at what is going on here, because I think there are three significant pictures inside the one picture of the cross. And those three pictures are an unjust exchange, an unparalleled humiliation, and an unthinkable isolation. An unjust exchange, an unparalleled humiliation, and an unthinkable isolation. So if you look at Mark chapter 15, in sentence 1, the Jewish leaders take Jesus to the Roman authorities at daybreak. It's a hot climate, it's a good time of the day to turn up for business. Like any government department, you want to get there before the queues start to develop. And in sentence 2, what we realise is between the religious courts and getting to the secular ones, they've changed the charge. From being a charge of blasphemy, calling himself the Son of God, to treason, calling himself the King of the Jews. Now that's a little curious, isn't it? But given that the Jews rejected Jesus constantly um, for being the King of the Jews, um, and he failed on them for being the revolutionary that they hoped he might be over the Romans. But that's the charge they put on him when they bring him to the secular courts. And Pilate is the man who takes him. And he's no lover of the Jewish people. And he knows that there's a hidden agenda and they're wanting to get rid of somebody and they're going to use him to get that done. So he turns to Jesus in sentence three and says, here's your chance. Speak up, my friend, about what's going on here. And Pilate is amazed. He marvels because in contrast, Jesus is calm, silent, peaceful, unflappable, and his enemies are sort of dancing around him, frantic, anxious, and scrambling for power. How could Jesus have such peace when everything is on the line for him? Think about maybe how you've been operating with the constant changes of the restrictions that we've had to face over the last few weeks as they escalate and as they unfold. How have you handled that? So what does he have to do with Jesus? Well, that's Pilate's dilemma. And he has a brainwave. He has a brainwave because there's Barabbas. And Barabbas, we don't know much about Barabbas, but it's clear that he's been part of an insurrection, which has involved murdering someone. And he is effectively a terrorist. And this is a tradition at this time of the year in the festival for them to release one of their prisoners. So Pilate says... um, Okay, we've got two revolutionaries that you could choose from. One's uh, healed, uh, taught and done nothing but good. The other one has maimed and killed and burned down the system. Which one would you like me to, to release? And to his confusion and horror, the crowd say, Barabbas. 
And what is going on here? The answer for the crowd is to switch the two people. Switch them. Mark's gospel couldn't be clearer. The answer to this is a switch. It's an unjust exchange. It's a substitution of unthinkable proportions. Sin is being slapped on somebody innocent so that the guilty person can go free. In early church history, you know when the plagues enveloped the cities, the tactic was to leave the city and run. Get away from the virus. Don't let it infect you. And ironically, the Christians were reported to have stayed behind and nursed not only their own sick, but actually anybody who was infected. And in the course of time, as they nursed those people, some of them became better, but the Christians actually got infected and died. Now, I'm not suggesting that we should have dropped that strategy for our current pandemic. We have a different health system. We understand transmission of viruses so much better. But the irony is, you see, in that situation, there was a switch of hosts. This is an unjust exchange here between Barabbas and Jesus. One perfectly good man who's done nothing wrong is going to be sentenced to death while a perfectly guilty man expecting death is going to stumble out of prison into his freedom. A healthy God, if you like, is choosing to become infected by man's uh, virus, humanity's virus, so that a diseased humanity might become whole again. This is the loving God that we find at the cross, who loves us at great cost. Later in a letter by a disciple, Peter, he frames this switch in these words. He says, Jesus himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. And like Barabbas, we have escaped certain death for our sins because Jesus switched place with us. Secondly, this execution is not just about being killed, it's about being publicly ridiculed. And uh, you need to remember this is a shame culture. If you've ever read the book by I Am Hershey called Infidel, you'll know that your name means everything in parts of the world. And this is what people spend their life doing, building and protecting their name, the honour of the family name. To have your name destroyed is to systematically dismantle your whole person. And this is what they do to Jesus here. This humiliation um, that he undertakes is unparalleled. Um, In sentences uh, 16 to 20, we get this mock coronation. It's a grotesque pantomime put on by the uh, soldiers, and it's designed to ridicule his kingship claims. Um, They produce the trappings of royalty, and they make mock homage to him. And next, the passers-by in sentence 29, you'll see they're like spectators at a car accident. And so they come up to Jesus and they vilify him. The original word says they literally blaspheme Jesus. They say to him, look at you now, you who said you could dismantle the temple. How about you rebuild it now? Just get off the cross and do it. In the same way, in sentence 31, the um, religious cohort insult him. And there's a combination of cruel sarcasm and false piety. Come down now. Come down now. Maybe we'll, we'll see and we'll believe that you are who you say you are. Even the people who are crucified alongside Jesus, who you think would have some sympathy, they chime in with their insults as well. So what you've got is on every side the full cross-section of humanity 
at one in their mockery of Jesus. And my question is, why so much hatred? Why so much abuse? I mean, isn't it enough just to have him die? They mock the claims of Jesus, that he's a king and that he's a messiah and that he's the way to God. This is what they can't stand. Those claims are ridiculous. You know, if he didn't say those things, we might actually like him. So much sneering and so much venom and so much contempt for Jesus in our world today. Have you ever thought that? Why do people mock Jesus so much in our culture? They don't mock Buddha. They, don't, they wouldn't mock Allah. But they're happy to give Jesus a go. The hostility is because of the exclusivity of his claims. So these people at the crucifixion are saying, as we might through clenched teeth, nobody tells me how I'm going to live my life. But the mocking also shows you that they have no idea how God works. I mean, if you're God, you should be coming down now from the cross. That's essentially the challenge. And it's repeated again and again. You can't be the king. You wouldn't let this happen to you. God would protect you. You'd be stronger than this. You wouldn't be weak and passive. You know, in a James Bond movie, the thing that I like about those movies is that the hero, um, James Bond, you know, he gets into a pickle and things get worse and worse and everything is about to finish really badly. And then Bond turns the tables in the last few minutes and rises above it all. And if it doesn't end like that, it's probably won an award in a foreign film festival. You see, their taunt here is, you say that you're supposed to be a hero. Well, do your hero thing, but he doesn't. He doesn't come down from the cross. Jesus remains pinned to the cross so that he can actually be the hero that he came to be. The mocking shows that we don't know how God works because that's not how we run our lives. Our lives are working well when we have power, when we have strength and when we're in control. And they seem to be failing, failing miserably when things are weak and when they're powerless and out of control. And that is why so many people at the moment with this virus are in trouble. God actually works through things that can be out of control, seemingly. And the mocking only underscores that they don't get it. Jesus knows in the end it's him or us. It's our shame or his. His name made nothing or our name turned into something. He takes the shame so that we can eventually share the glory. Jesus Christ loses his reputation so that we can have a reputation. Now, to be sure, death by crucifixion would have to be one of the cruelest and the most degrading forms of punishment that has ever been conceived by human perversity. But that's not what Mark emphasizes here. He simply says, towards the end here, and they crucified him. So, we know it's a switch. We know it's an unjust exchange. We know it's unparalleled humiliation. But most of all, most of all, it was an event of unthinkable isolation. Firstly, the darkness. You know, for three hours, the world gets plunged into darkness. And it can't be explained away by a solar eclipse. It's, it's mysterious. It's a sign of cosmic rupture. And if you read through the Bible, physical darkness often rep- represents spiritual darkness. And it's a metaphor for everything that's gone wrong with the world. 
and with us. Essentially, it's the turning away from God, the light, and the plunging ourselves into something else. You could liken it to a solar system. and I'm, The solar system works really well when all the planets orbit around the sun. But if a planet were not to orbit the sun and face away, it would be plunged into darkness, moved into the shadows. Now, most of us don't experience pitch dark. I mean, we have street lights, we have, you know... Um, mobile phone light, we have moonlight, but in the catastrophic bushfires earlier this year, the thing that really, really unnerved people was when they were plunged into darkness at midday. Couldn't even see each other, let alone, you know, see their hand. To be in real darkness is a radical dislocation. And the same thing can happen spiritually. I mean, if you live for money, if you live for love or reputation or happiness or career, whatever it is, those things can plunge you into a dark world. It is radical isolation. Look at the cry of Jesus uh, in the pitch dark of this moment in sentence 34. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that's not what you would expect from someone in their last moments as they expire and die. No, this is a sudden, passionate expression of real isolation that could be heard from some distance away. So what's going on here? He's not saying, oh man, the pain is really getting to me at this moment. He is talking about being abandoned by God the Father. And so what mysteriously causes this rupture between God the Son and God the Father at this point? Well, our darkness, our judgment. It descends upon him at this point. And this is much worse for him than the crown of thorns or the mocking or the whipping or even the nails. They are nothing in comparison to this cosmic horror. So let me try and illustrate that, and I'll just grab a book for this purpose. Let me try and illustrate. Now imagine for a moment that this hand uh, represents you, and the ceiling up here represents God. Uh, And this book over here, um, it's not a Bible, but it represents a record of your sins. And these sins actually separate you from having a relationship with God. And God is so holy and just that, look, even if it was only one page thick, it would still form an obstacle between you and God. And the second problem with that is, is that God, being who he is, will not let this go unchecked. He will deal with this one day. Anyone who is in rebellion against him will be dealt with. Now suppose on this hand we have Jesus, and Jesus steps into our world. He is perfectly a pleasure to his Father. He's obedient at every point. He never behaves as we have behaved. Um, When Jesus hung on the cross, when that cry was yelled out, what was going on was the sins of all of us, of all of humanity, and every time was suddenly placed on Jesus. And so he became separated for the first time from God the Father. Christ became sin. 
That's what caused the cry at the cross. God effectively punished our wrong by letting it fall on Jesus at the cross. Now, was it effective? Is it an effective solution as far as we're concerned? Very effective. Look, there is nothing now getting in the way between us and God. We never have to know what Jesus experienced in that separation. There are no more obstacles there. Now, this suffering by Jesus is not sort of senseless or blind. It's not even just that he's giving us a good example at that point. It is purpose-driven. But I guess the question is, how do you know if it worked? Well, um, there is a, a temple in Jerusalem, and Mark records at that time that the, there was a thick uh, curtain covered uh, from, for 28 metres from top to bottom, separating the average place for the you know, average worshipper to the no-go zone, the Holy of Holies. And uh, when that Jesus died, that curtain ripped from the top to the bottom. Once a year only could a priest, a high priest, go inside that Holy Holies with a sacrifice that would keep people atoned for another year. And now effectively that curtain breaks from top to bottom. What screamed no access at all suddenly becomes accessible. And the tearing in verse 38 is God's work because it tears from the top right down to the bottom. And the reason for that is because Jesus' solution is a permanent one, not a temporary one. Access to God is now open. The curtain has been torn, and it shows us that the cross is working. And anyone can connect to God now. And Mark shows us the first person who does. So the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus, heard his cry, and saw how he died, said, surely this is the Son of God. Surely this was the Son of God. Mark starts his story by telling us that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And then all through the story, people are struggling to work out who Jesus is right up until the end. And this is the first guy that we come across who sees crystal clear who Jesus is and what he has done. Now, how does he have that clarity of vision? It says he heard his cry and he saw how he died. I've seen a couple of people die in my lifetime. It's not pleasant. But this hardened soldier, he would have seen a lot of death, a lot of brutality throughout his life. But somehow the light penetrates the darkness of his heart and it dawns on him this person is unique and different to anyone else I've ever seen die. The soldier is not a Jew. He's not an aristocrat. He's not a priest. He's not even a disciple. And yet he recognizes Jesus as the Son of God in the weakest and the bloodiest and the cruelest moment of his kingship. If you've ever wondered if you could be a Christian, then you need to see what this story here is telling you. Because it doesn't matter who you are, it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter how dark your heart is. It doesn't matter if you're camping outside the gates of Mordor right now. Anyone has access 
to this God. Anyone who really looks at the cross, anyone who really listens to that cry, will know in the end that they are more wicked than they ever imagined and more loved than they dare dream. It's ironic, isn't it, that the government at the moment, governments all over the world are throwing money at this virus. It's called a stimulus package, but you know, in fact, it's a rescue package. And we're all sitting on this saying to ourselves, you know, I wonder whether it's enough. Will it work? How long will it take before we know whether it's working? We're not so sure if it can rescue us, but what about this rescue package I've outlined to you today from Mark chapter 15? What do you see going on here at the cross? Is it a sad and pathetic end to a little man? Is it, is it the inevitable unraveling of a political revolutionary? Why that switch? And why the mocking? And why that cry of isolation? Something profound is going on here. And if you can work it out, it determines Jesus' identity for you. And if a soldier with blood still wet on his hands can be transformed, well, gosh, anybody can. There are some people who believed several months ago that what was happening in China was China's problem. It would never affect little old Adelaide. But the coronavirus teaches us that things that happen a long, long way away can eventually impact us. The Spanish flu was a vague anomaly. It was a little blip in the progress of the 20th century. But the coronavirus teaches us not to forget our history and to learn from it. You see, just because events begin miles away, even at other points in history, it doesn't mean they don't impact us here and now. Big problems require big solutions and big sacrifices. Christ lived the life that we should have lived and he died the death that we should have died. And that's where the cross fits. Maybe the ground, now that the ground is opening up beneath us, underneath us, it's time to look at Easter afresh and realize that we are more wicked than we ever imagined, but we are more loved than we dare dream. Thanks.